70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Здравствуйте. Меня зовут Ольга. Мы из города Кунгур, Пермский край. Очень рады отправить вам видео. Итак, KBS исполняется 70. Hello, we are Alexandra and Olga. I send greetings to all of you on behalf of my brother Alexander as well, because he has difficulty speaking due to his condition. KBS World Radio is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. 70 years is not a short time. I think the years added more value to KBS World Radio just like good wine. I first started to tune into KBS World Radio in the late 90s and have been enjoying the channel ever since. Now I can't imagine my life without KBS World Radio. Happy 70th birthday! Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's the 3rd of November and welcome to our Friday edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. Rival parties continue to clash over the incorporation of Kimpo City into Seoul, with the opposition blasting the ruling party's plan as a political maneuver to garner votes for next year's general elections. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. The government unveiled its pension reform plan last week, but it came under fire for lacking specifics. We'll take a closer look for our weekly economy review today. And coming up for Movie Spotlight, we review an indie drama about North Korean defectors and a documentary about a local film club that sparked the career of director Bong Joon-ho. Let's begin, Korea 24. The ruling People Power Party's proposal to incorporate the city of Kimpo into Seoul has continued to kick up a political storm. Both sides of the political aisle have been trading accusations in a bid to perhaps gain an upper hand as they eye next year's general elections, a prospect which is also weighing heavily on the ruling camp's innovation committee. To tell us about the latest in this ambitious move by the ruling People Power Party and the rebuttal by the main opposition Democratic Party, I'm joined in the studio today by KBS World Radio news anchor, Tom McCarthy. Tom, hello. It's good to see you again. Hi, John Ho. Thanks for having me. Okay, so following yesterday's launch by the PPP of an investigative committee on the incorporation of Kimpo and Seoul, the parties continued to trade barbs. Meanwhile, the DP has offered up an alternative plan to ease congestion between the two cities, which is a key issue that the residents of Kimpo have raised concerns over. So what did the DP have to say? 
So the DP ramped up its offensive against the ruling party today, with floor leader Hong Ikpyo attempting to link the incorporation plan to the PPP's Megasol initiative, absorbing a number of surrounding satellite cities, into the capital area in a bid to present the ruling camp as against balanced regional development. They said that the PPP's push for incorporation is a pandering attempt to solicit support in Seoul ahead of the general elections next year. And the DP had a counter-proposal, right? Yeah, they are recommending an expansion of Subway Line 5 and also remain open to a possible expansion of the infamously overcrowded Line 9. Hong did say that his party is ready and willing to work with the PPP once they produce a serious, responsible plan, while also calling for a National Assembly task force to improve Seoul's global competitiveness. And how did the PPP respond to the attacks and proposal? The ruling camp accused the DP of neglecting the convenience of residents, while Party Secretary General Lee Man-hee accused the opposition of prioritizing political point scoring with propaganda that impedes national development. Now, you mentioned that the DP characterized the PPP's initiative as more or less pandering in the capital region. The party's ability or lack thereof to win support in this whole metro area is actually a major concern for the party. On that note, the PPP's Innovation Committee today came out with a call to action for party heavyweights concerning next year's general elections. So what do they say? So after the committee's fourth meeting today, uh, the chief of the committee, Dr. In Yohan, who is also known by his American name, John Linton, called on party leaders and senior lawmakers, as well as those aligned closely with President Yoon Suk-yeol, to either focus on running in hard-to-win districts around the capital region or not run at all. Yes, it's a seemingly controversial move for a party attempting to gain a majority in the National Assembly. What was the reason for this? Dr. In is looking to restructure the party at its foundation, with additional recommendations that include pursuing a 10% cut to the number of lawmakers and a revision to the party's constitution that lawmakers relinquish, uh, that lawmakers relinquish immunity from arrest. Other recommendations include slashing parliamentary salaries and expense budgets, with further cuts for lawmakers that neglect the duties of their office, such as attendance at plenary or committee sessions. What appears to be driving these calls by the Innovation Committee? Well, the party needs to increase its appeal in the capital area. In 2016, it won a paltry 35 of 122 seats, so less than 30%. It then did even worse in 2020 with 15 of 103 seats, or about 15%, so they need to do something to win over voters. The divisive partisanship between the ruling and opposition camps is not limited to campaigning for support with initiatives and policies, but also the judiciary, where one major vacancy may become too soon. So what's happening there? After the DP-dominated parliament rejected Lee Kyun-yong as chief justice of the Supreme Court, which was the first denial in 35 years, the president now needs to name a new nominee. And who are the top contenders now? Sources in the judicial community and the ruling camp are saying that former Supreme Court Justice Jo Hee-dae and current Justice Oh Suk-jun are the frontrunners. They both received the endorsement of the Korean Bar Association. The nominee, whoever it is, is expected to be announced by the top office next week. But we're saying that there's likely to be another vacancy as well, driven in part by further party politicking. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the top post of the Constitutional Court is also likely to be empty as well, with current president Yoon Nam-sok finishing his term next Friday. And the rival parties have not yet made headway in agreeing on a confirmation hearing for current nominee Lee Jong-sok. 
Okay, let's shift gears now to some international news. The war between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas continues to rage on, with the Israel Defence Forces closing in on Gaza City the past couple of days. Uh, what new developments have there been today? So the IDF's chief of staff, Herzi Halevi, said on Tuesday that his forces have encircled Gaza City, and some units have even begun operating inside the city. Uh, and he noted that combat in a dense and complex urban environment is very difficult, but ground forces are receiving a lot of support from accurate intelligence and airstrike support. And the conflict is managing to affect South Korean nationals there as well. Uh, can you give us the latest on the situation with uh, South Korean nationals that have been reported there? A family of five that was living in Gaza, which was a South Korean woman, her ethnically Palestinian husband and their three children, uh, all of whom have South Korean citizenship, made it through the very tense Rafah crossing into Egypt on Thursday. Uh, a story by the New York Times yesterday reported on numerous families forced to choose between separation or staying in Gaza, so it's a relief that the whole family was able to make it into Egypt. Yes, we got confirmation of that safety. Uh, there was another report from the foreign ministry today about South Koreans evacuating from Israel. Uh, what happened there? The ministry said that 15 nationals and one family member with foreign citizenship made it out of Israel aboard a Japanese defense plane, along with, of course, Japanese nationals, uh, about 60 of them. The flight will land in Japan, and then the South Korean embassy in Tokyo will provide assistance to repatriate the South Koreans and the family member. OK, we'll wrap it up there today for our news briefing. Tom, thank you for bringing us those headlines. Thank you very much. Last week, the Ministry of Health and Welfare unveiled its pension reform plan after more than a year of consultations with experts. The headline measure was gradually increasing the national pension premium rate, which the ministry said was, quote-unquote, inevitable. However, it immediately came under criticism for its lack of detail and lack of specific numbers. To look closer at the reform plans for today's weekly economy review, we have joining us in the studio economics professor Yang Junsuk from the Catholic University of Korea. Professor Yang, hello. It's uh, great to see you as always. Happy to be here. So pension reform has long been a hot-button issue, of course, and in fact, it was one of President Yoon's three key reform pledges alongside labour and education. It's also an urgent problem, as experts have said that the pension fund would be depleted by 2055. It's within this backdrop that the reform plans were unveiled last week. So can you walk us through what was announced and what's your assessment of it, especially what you make of the criticism that lacked detail? OK, well, uh, the uh, they uh, plan included all the right things. As you mentioned, the premium rate will have to go up. Also mentioned that the retirement age will probably have to go up as well. Uh, that may involve some uh, labor reforms as well. So you can work until you start receiving the pension post-retirement. Uh, and then there were also some discussions on the income replacement rate. Uh, that is how much uh, of your average uh, pay that you would get after retirement. Mm. So they said all the right things, but they mentioned absolutely no numbers whatsoever. And their justification for that was that uh, deciding on the numbers require public discussion and public agreement between all the related parties. Problem. This is a very technical issue. Mm. Uh, luckily, 
there was a lot of computer simulation being done, and we have simulations under some very uh, uh, a large number of scenarios, uh, including, well, what happens when we raise the current 9% pension tax rate to, say, 12 or 15%? What happens if we delay the current uh, age where you start receiving the uh, retirement pay from 63 to 65? Uh, and so we have the scenarios. Uh, we have perhaps the numbers worked out from those scenarios. But you want to put that into public discussion well, uh, the very reason that we have these simulations is because public, uh, I'm not going to say they cannot handle these numbers, but they do not know these numbers. Mm. So we will have to probably deal with those scenarios anyway. And the people who made those scenarios, people who made those uh, simulations are probably going to have to basically decide on the numbers. Otherwise, uh, it'll be politically decided, and we will have this problem again sometime in the uh, this decade or next decade. Uh, so I'm very disappointed that they did not mention specific numbers, mm. uh, and this just makes it very vulnerable that we will have a short-term political solution, uh, which means that in five to ten years, we will have the same problem again. Right, so... Yes, as you said, there are various scenarios that have been presented, but it is now seemingly up to the National Assembly to try and uh, sort through those scenarios and pick what works. However, there were some details that were announced. One detail that was announced was the plan to gradually increase the monthly pension benefit, the income replacement rate, from 300,001 to 400,001, which is approximately 300 US dollars. Uh, what do you make of this aim? Okay, well, uh, the uh, these allowance is basically going to everybody who makes less than about 200, uh, 2 million won. Uh, but uh, according to the uh, National Pension Research Institute, which is a subsidiary of National Pension Service, the minimum amount that an older person requires to live is about 1.2 million won. And for a couple, it's about uh, 1.9 million won. So uh, obviously, this allowance is nowhere near the amount, minimum amount of, uh, that people uh, need to live on. Uh, now, the problem is uh, the uh, national, uh, this type of uh, elderly allowance, as well as national pension, they were not really designed to be sole income for uh, retirees. They were supposed to be partially uh, reinforcing the uh, retirement plans that people had already. But the problem is, if you look at most of the polls that are being taken, uh, then people, most of the population are not really getting ready for retirement. And they are looking for uh, to the pension as well as this allowance as mm. being their sole source of income. And it's just not going to be enough for most of them. Um, the Now, also another problem is that uh, it's very hard to design uh, one-size-fits-all plan for the elderly. That's because Korea has the highest uh, percentage of uh, elderly uh, po uh, in elders in poverty in the OECD. Mm. Uh, but if you look at, say, the uh, wealth distribution, then some of the richest uh, people in Korea are the elderly. It mm. all depends basically on how much assets they were able to gather up during uh, their working lifetime. And if you were lucky enough to, say, get multiple housing, 
units. Or if you uh, got lucky in the stock market, then you really are among, say, the top five or top one percent of Korean population. And uh, that category, uh, the elderly is overrepresented. Mm. Uh, but then, as I mentioned, if you made the wrong strategic decision or you did not save, then you're among the uh, poverty uh, portion of the population. So you really cannot design one size fits all uh, plan for uh, to fit the uh, all the retirees because uh, the uh, scope of income and welfare is just too wide. Right, but perhaps there would be more leeway if they raise the premium rate and collected more money, but we don't have uh, exactly how much the government wants to uh, collect now uh, on raising the premium uh, rates. So meanwhile, then, on Tuesday, the ruling People Power Party's uh, chief policymaker, lawmaker Yu Yidong, suggested the integration of state pension and basic pension into a new universal basic pension scheme. How do you assess the feasibility and necessity of this idea, especially as you said, South Korea is rushing towards becoming the world's most aged society and elderly poverty is a huge issue at the moment. Okay, well, we mentioned the uh, monthly allowance. That's the uh, basic pension. Right. Uh, and then we mentioned the national pension. Uh, that's based on how much you feed into the system. And right now the uh, target is, right now it's about 35% replacement rate for uh, your average lifetime income. Uh, they want to raise that to 40%. Problem is, can we afford it? Because national pension is if you look at the long-term projections, they're going to bleed money even though they're uh, in the black right now. Uh, so combining these pensions or combining uh, the uh, public employee pension with the national pension, that's been uh, in under discussion for a long time. But the problem is, as you mentioned, because there are such wide range of different elderly as well as the young who have their skin in this game, uh, they cannot come up with a decision uh, that is agreeable to most people. Uh, for people who have fed a lot of money into the uh, national pension system, they're afraid that if uh, the basic welfare is combined with uh, national pension, then the money that they fed in, the money that uh, they're supposed to get back, will be partially used to fund the basic income, which will go to other people. Hmm. Uh, on the other hand, uh, for the uh, people who are running the uh, basic in- uh, basic income, basic allowance, uh, unless they get some uh, fusion for money, they will have to compete for government revenues. And right now, not only this administration, but the last administration and probably the next administration as well, they have a lot of things to uh, spend money on, uh, providing uh, more assistance to young people trying to raise the birth rate, uh, trying to put in uh, more uh, state-of-the-art industries in Korea, uh, uh, more defense spending because of the uh, current problems that we see with the uh, military, so on and so on and so on. Uh, So we have a lot of money to uh, put in. And if we raise the elderly benefits, it might just become a black hole. Right. Uh, So uh, for the uh, basic uh, income, uh, basic welfare uh, payment, uh, these people would like to join it with the national pension system because then they can use the massive t- uh, national pension funds and perhaps design a more uh, logical or equitable uh, 
uh, retirement pay system or pension system. But the problem is then, as I said, they will probably have to use some of the uh, fund for the uh, pension uh, to give that money to perhaps people who have not uh, paid into the uh, national pension system. Representative Yu also said a gradual transformation of the state's pensions management into more of a reserve fund fashion is necessary. Uh, what this means is that while the current management is a combination of a pay-as-you-go system and reserve fund, uh, Representative Yu's suggestion is to increase the portion of the latter. What do you make of this idea as well? Okay, well, that is uh, one solution that is sort of obvious. Um, and that's what U.S. has done. Uh, if you look at the U.S. Social Security system at the beginning when it was installed in 1930s, it was a pay-as-you-go system. So current payment was used to pay out all the uh, retirees. Uh, and the current generation who paid into the system, uh, they were politically guaranteed that next generation, uh, the generation after them, uh, will pay for their retirement. So in, in a sense, it's a Ponzi game, uh, but it's a manageable Ponzi game because one, population was growing, and two, government guaranteed it. Uh, but uh, it works if you're in a uh, system which has stable population or rising population, uh, but if you're working in a system which has falling population, it's not sustainable. Uh, so in the United States, they moved on to a partially funded system. Korea also uh, is currently working with a partially funded system. But the problem is, I think uh, people complained this uh, when the National uh, Pension Service was expanded to vast majority of the population. Uh, they were always worried that the money was not going to be enough. Um, and then another problem is, uh, will the fund be used politically or will uh, the uh, fund be used uh, to make good investments so that the uh, fund will, be, will grow uh, beyond what the people paid in? And right now, the evidence does seem to be mixed, partially because the uh, pension fund uh, is such so important. Investments tend to be very conservative, so uh, the uh, returns are not that large compared to other uh, social security systems around the world. And another problem is that there is some uh, movement to try to use this fund more politically than profit-oriented investment. We've seen some problems uh, with the last administration trying to use the uh, pension fund for ESG investments. I guess all these suggestions also suggest that uh, there's more debate needed, but this plan that was meant to come from the government last week was supposed to at least shut down some of these uh, arguments as well, right? Well, it was designed that way, but everybody knows that the devil's in the details, the uh, devil's in the actual numbers. Uh, and since none of that was discussed, uh, it did not uh, solve any problems, but in a sense, it didn't create any problems either because once the numbers were uh, introduced, the winners and losers become very clear. And uh, the, perhaps the uh, fight um, may be concentrated on fewer issues, but it'll be tougher. But right now, because they've opened up to everything, uh, there will be continuing conflicts. But so far, no clear winners and losers. So uh, perhaps they will actually discuss it. But uh, in the end... Somebody's going to have to decide on the numbers. 
Let me squeeze in a couple of more questions as well before we go. Uh, there was a survey conducted by the Federation of Korean Trade Unions uh, that said the Korean public thinks what the Korean think, public thinks about the gap between Korea's legal retirement age, which is 60, and the age when the state pension payments begin. <laughs> which is currently 63, and by 2033, that'll be pushed further back to the age of 65. So they're raising the pension payment age. 62.8% of participants replied that the two ages should be identical. What do you think? I think that's an obvious solution, but the problem is it's very difficult to achieve politically uh, because uh, the as the longer you stay in the company, the older you get, uh, the current Korean pay system, it's not really based on productivity. It's based on how long you stay in the company. So uh, the companies want to push you out once you get beyond a certain age. Uh, they have tried to install a system where you can pay less for older workers, but uh, workers themselves do not like that system. And younger people do not like a system where older people stick around older because, well, you want to move up the corporate ladder. And if there's much more older people on top, younger people cannot move up to the corporate ladder. They cannot get to a higher pay grade. Uh, So it's an obvious problem. But politically, it's it's going to be very hard to solve. And finally, I just wanted to ask you as well, what's the significance of the state pension reform in the context of discussions on universal basic income? Because this is something that does continue to come up. Okay, well, it depends on what you mean by universal basic income, and nobody's really decided on that yet. Uh, Some people... Uh, Universal basic income means you get some more money on top of what you're getting already from the government. In that case, I really don't think uh, the system uh, will change that much at all. Uh, Now, people uh, on the very bottom of the income scale where they do not get any money, uh, getting, say, uh, uh, 400,000 won per month, uh, that can help quite a bit. But for people who already have a steady source of income, this is not going to change the situation by very much. Uh, and uh, one of the goals of uh, UBI is to decrease income disparity. Again, if you're just getting more money on top of what you're getting, that's not going to change your income distribution by much. Now, other people, uh, they want to replace the current welfare system with the uh, universal basic income. Under that case, well, you may end up where uh, people who need more money, uh, the handicapped, the sick, uh, they might not get enough money, uh, whereas people who are doing fairly well, uh, they're uh, still getting money. Uh, So especially in a situation right now where the government is short of funds, uh, I'm not sure if uh, treating the basic income as sort of a universal uh, payment is a good idea. Uh, But uh, this uh, four hundred basic income of four hundred thousand one. Yeah, it does sound like universal basic income because it's basically going out to everybody who's under a certain income threshold. Professor Yang, we'll have to leave it there. As always, uh, thank you for your analysis. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea Twenty Four Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 25.22 points, or 1.08% on Friday, to close the week at 2,368.34. 
The Tech Heavy Kosdaq also rose, climbing 9.21 points, or 1.19%, to close at 782.05. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 20.51 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,322.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, we've come to our daily segment, Career Trending. This is where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, Daniel Che, our news editor. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you again, Jango. Okay. So what do you have for us first today? Last month, we covered the story about a sauna in Incheon Sa district that was reported to have found bedbugs under a mat. But this may have been just a tip of the iceberg. More such sightings in other parts of the nation have been made. Right, this is not what we wanted to hear after we talked about this story last month. I remember that the sauna in Incheon had bedbugs despite conducting appropriate disinfecting and cleaning. So how far and wide has it spread now? Unfortunately, so far there have been reported cases from various parts of the country, including Daegu and even Seoul as well. On Friday, numerous regional governments announced plans to conduct thorough checkups for the bugs from next Monday through Wednesday. Incheon City, for example, will carry out such inspections on more than 750 lodging, sauna and bath facilities. As far as Daegu, that's more than 200 kilometers away from Incheon. I mean, uh, we saw how the infestation quickly spread from France to the UK. But it's very worrying to see it spread so quickly and so far in Korea as well. Yes, one of the possible reasons for the sudden rise in bedbugs is the increased influx of tourists, apparently, and the sharing economy with more people becoming a part of services like Airbnb. Mm. As bedbug infestations are becoming growing issues in other parts of the globe, Koreans returning from overseas also must thoroughly disinfect and sanitize their belongings upon returning to their home country. Indeed. So what can we do if we do find bedbugs? What tips do you have? Run <laughs> and hide. Well, Other than that. All, in all seriousness, using high-powered steamers or vacuum cleaners to kill or suck up the bugs or larvae can be quite effective. Using the right insecticides can be helpful. The safest bet is to properly discard items like mattresses in which you found bed bugs from. However, these tiny insects can survive up to around 150 days without food in the proper conditions mm. and have strong resistance to many types of disinfectants and pesticides. They thrive in colder temperatures as well. Uh, while they do not spread lethal infectious diseases, they can cause severe skin irritation with their bites. If bitten, do uh, clean the affected parts with soap and go see a doctor to get proper medication. Yes, hopefully we can get this situation under control. But in the meantime, uh, we'll keep an eye uh, on it. Let's uh, move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? A Seoul Metro announced on Friday plans to enable commuters to better communicate their needs and get immediate response while riding on the train, something that will be very useful in terms of adjusting cooling or heating systems. Wow, really? I mean, commuters are already able to share their thoughts on matters online or in an emergency directly communicate with uh, the driver uh, on their uh, devices installed on the trains. But tell us more about this potential latest upgrade then. 
So those uh, communication devices are only for emergencies. I don't think I feel too hot or cold should be considered emergencies. <laughs> exactly. They've yes. been misused and abused as of late. Uh, you even have seen some compartments in trains that says less cold or less warm compartments, mm, but it's still not yes. enough. Right. Mm. The transport company launched a chatbot service available for use via the messaging app Kakao Talk named Dota 24. It provides an array of handy services, including travel routes, arrival and departure times and fares. To cater to the needs of people with disabilities, it can read out the text messages and convert user voice commands to text messages as well. The main purpose of this around-the-clock service is to allow commuters to get an immediate response to request to perhaps adjust the heating or cooling level of train, among other requests. Right. Well, this might sound excessive. I mean, it's not like subway trains are our own personal cars where we can just adjust the uh, heating and cooling at will. But actually, I understand temperature is the biggest issue for commuters, according to recent surveys. Yes. According to data accumulated between 2020 to August this year, provided by Coriel, Seoul Metro and Salt City, requests to adjust the heating or cooling levels on the train took up 52% of all requests or inquiries made by commuters. Mm. Line 2 getting the most such complaints and Line 5 the least. Only 3.9% of requests and inquiries were about other matters like train operation time, related issues like delays. Seoul Metro CEO Peko expressed confidence that Dota 24 will provide the expeditious response that commuters seek and that the transport company will continue to upgrade the chatbot. Yes, Korea can, of course, get very hot during the summer, so overheating can become a major issue if the trains get too crowded. It can become a health issue even. But if there are too few people, then the air conditioning might make the cars too cool as well. So that could be another issue. Korea also gets incredibly cold in the winter as well. So that could be an issue as well. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if communities can indeed uh, control the temperatures in the trains directly with this new service. Yes, uh, it will be quite the upgrade indeed for the service in Korea. Greater control, a big power and big responsibility once this happens. Sure, I'm sure communities in other countries would be quite jealous. Uh, let's move on to our last story. What do you have for us today? Jungkook, one of the members of the hit group BTS, has released his first solo album titled Golden. That's according to his agency, Big Hit, on Friday. Right, so some big K-pop news. Uh, can you tell us more about the album? There are 11 songs, including Standing Next to You, which is the title track of the album. And an upbeat dan- it's an upbeat dance number. The music video for this track was also released earlier today. And there is Yes or No with lyrics that sound like a conversation between lovers. All the songs are in English, apparently part of efforts to cater to his global fan base. Some huge artists' features, including DJ Snake, Jack Harlow, and Major Lazer. And behind the scenes, British singer Ed Sheeran and Canadian singer-songwriter Sean Mendes were part of the production process. Jungkook arranged the order of the songs to reflect the changes experienced in relationships as time passes. So the initial songs are upbeat and energetic, with the final few numbers being melancholy and somewhat sad, portraying emotions experienced as lovers face crossroads. Mm. So a new album means that we'll likely be seeing more of Jungkook as well now, right? What can we expect from him? Yes, on Tuesday, U.S. time, the BTS member will appear on Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show. The day after that, he will be on the Today Show City Concert Series. In both programs, he will be featured as guest and performer. Jungkook is no stranger to the Tonight Show, having been on it with his whole BTS team back in July 2021. As for the Today Show, the K-pop group made an appearance in September 2020. On November 20th, he will hold his first in-person solo concert titled Golden Live on Stage to commemorate the album's release and showcase performances of several songs. 
Yes, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear news of the album topping charts or possibly breaking records in the near future as well. That's where we'll wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for having me. It's time now for Movie Spotlight, our Friday feature reviewing some of the latest releases at the Korean box office and online. And this week, our critics are joining us via video call. First, we have Jason Bershevis. Jason, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Hello from Hong Kong. Yes. And we also have Darcy Paquette with us as well, also from Hong Kong. Hello to you too. Hi. It's good to see you. Yes, we are speaking to you both via video call today because, as you said, we are both in Hong Kong. And no, our critics are not on holiday together, although that would have been very cute. But uh, they are both presenting an academic, presenting in an academic uh, conference this week titled The Origins of the South Korean Film Renaissance. Jason, before we introduce this week's films, do you want to quickly tell our listeners a bit about this event? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a three-day conference uh, here in Hong Kong. It's titled The Origins of the South Korean uh, Film Renaissance. Um, it's organized by uh, Lingham University uh, here in Hong Kong and also uh, University of Washington uh, in the U.S. And uh, it's focusing on this, this period in the 90s and early 2000s. I, did, I uh, presented a paper on Bong Joon-ho's uh, Barking Dogs Never Bite, which was released in 2000. Um, and uh, yeah, so a lot of interesting uh, presentations and papers that have been deli- delivered over the past uh, couple of days. Um, and uh, yeah, it's got me uh, thinking somewhat and uh, tr- trying to delve into further research. And yeah, it's a really kind of it's a really well-run, very informative event and lots of very talented speakers, including, might I add, uh, Delcy Parquet, who <laughs> presented uh, in the first panel with me. Uh, he, was talking, he was talking about the, the, the Korea's kind of global tours. So uh, uh, lots, to, lots to kind of get your teeth into here. Sure. Well, it sounds like a fascinating event and Hong Kong is very lucky <coughs> to have you both there and I'm sure your talks were fascinating as well but anyway we have a job to do and that is of course to review some new releases let's get into them now our first film this week is an independent feature about a North Korean defector it's called A Tour Guide and the Korean title is Middle Suinan Salam it is a debut by director Kwagunmi and it won a Best Actor Award at the Chunju Film Festival this May, and has also been invited to the New York Asian Film Festival, the Vancouver Film Festival, and the Florence Korean Film Festival as well. It's now screening in theatres in Korea. Darcy, can you introduce this film for us? Sure. It's, I mean, very much focused on this central character, whose name is Hanyoung. Uh, she originally escaped from North Korea together with her brother, and spent a number of years in China. Uh, she learned how to speak Chinese uh, before eventually moving on to South Korea, uh, where she hopes for a better life. Uh, being bilingual, she decides to get certified to give tour guides or to give tours to 
Chinese tourists. And, you know, there are various kind of hurdles involved in that, but uh, she's making some progress. Uh, and then uh, the Chinese tours start to shut down uh, in the wake of the 2017 uh, fad issue. Uh, and at the same time, her brother's also uh, disappeared. So, yeah, I mean, she's dealing with various struggles, but it's a story about her experiences in Seoul. Right. So it's about the struggle of a uh, North Korean defector adjusting to life uh, in South Korea. Jason, it sounds like a very compelling setup, especially for people who are interested in the issue of North Korean defectors. What did you think of it? Yeah, I quite liked it. I saw it in Jeonju earlier on uh, this year. It certainly follows uh, a similar trend we've seen in indie films over the past, uh, well, t- you know, 10, 15 years, tackling North uh, or focusing on North Korean defectors, you know, largely abandoned by society. We see that in this film. Uh, I think what's interesting, what I liked about this is how uh, w- without revealing too much, um, how the two characters, well, two of the central characters, or two of the characters in the film, uh, including lead and uh, the ca- character's brother as well. Uh, I, I suppose in a sense they're, they're able to take charge of the narrative and they're victims of a, a very unfair society. It's very difficult for them to find, to, to kind of uh, find success or, or have a comfortable life in Korea. Um, but uh, so I liked like that, I mean, the brother essentially, he wants to get back to North Korea. He, want, he He's not happy in, in the South and he wants to take charge of what he, he wants to be able to be in control of his, his decisions. Um, and we see that with her as well later on in the film. And it's typical of a, a CAFA production. It's, uh, this is Korean Academy of Film Arts. It's well produced. Uh, uh, performances are, are strong. You know, nothing necessarily, you know, new in terms of breaking new ground, but I would say it was pretty, pretty decent overall. Right, so a well-put-together drama, essentially. Darcy, what did you make of it, especially uh, the performances? Because as we mentioned, uh, the lead actress, Lee Sahal, won the Best Actor Award at Chanju uh, this year. Was it a deserving choice? Yes, I do think it was. Uh, I'm kind of a fan of this actress. Uh, you know, she's still at <laughs> a very early stage in her career. Um, now, I guess, I mean, people might know her from television. She was in a, a TV drama called Less Than Evil or Napun Hyungsa. Uh, in terms of film, she's done a lot of independent stuff. Um, mm. Her lead roles have come in, you know, quite, uh, I don't know, small films, I guess you would say, or films that haven't gotten a big audience, but she's been great in all of them. So I'm, you know, I kind of see her as someone who in, in the future may kind of break out to wider consciousness. Uh, but in this film, she's very, you know, she's on the screen almost all the time. So it's one of these performances where we really kind of get into uh, her character and kind of feel all the nuances of what she's going through. And uh, She's both a likable character, but not too simplistic in a way. Like she's uh, complicated enough that we get to see, you know, various sides of her um, um, yeah, so in that sense, uh, it's an interesting watch and a great performance. Right, it does sound like quite an affecting film, and one I'd be interested to check out as well. Once again, it's called A Tour Guide, and it's out now in Korean theatres. Our second film this week is a new documentary titled Yellow Door, 90s Lo-Fi Film Club. The Korean title is Noranmun, 
Hegima Sinepil Tairi, and it's about a film club in early 1990s Korea. Its members, which included a young Bong Juno as well, were representative of a passion for film that reached particularly intense levels in that era. So it's actually quite fitting that you two are at a conference uh, celebrating perhaps that era as well. Uh, it premiered at last month's uh, Busan International Film Festival and is now streaming on Netflix. So, Jason, can you give us the introduction to this one? Yes, and with pleasure. Um, yeah, I saw this, uh, this film uh, at the Busan Film Festival uh, that recently wrapped up, and it was my last screening. And you know, I was at the end of the... I was basically running out of energy. I was running out of gas. I was like, shall I go and watch this movie? It's going to be available on Netflix anyway. I was like, no, I'm going to go. Uh, because this, this, is a, this is a movie that features Wong Jin and as uh, my, our listeners, our wonderful listeners, probably know I'm a bit of a fan. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, this film is directed by uh, Lee Hyuk Day. Uh, and what it does is it's called, yeah, it's called Yellow Door, and it focuses on this film club in the 1990s that included a member called, somewhat, yeah, called uh, Bong Joon-ho. So, um, and, uh, you know, a, a somewhat uh, famous figure right now. And uh, so the film, I mean, initially what, how it was sold was it, they, uh, it, it was basically a look at, well, it was basically trying to track down uh, his first film, his first animated film that no one's seen other than those that are part of this club called Yellow Door. Uh, so, um, so this movie, Looking for Paradise, I had never seen it, so I was really curious. But it's actually been more than that. I mean, of course, they talk about this film, and you see, you see, you see clips from this kind of very kind of uh, low budget animated movie that Bong put together. But it features many of his kind of characteristics that we we'll see later on in his career. But it kind of he interviews all these the members of the group, and clearly they have a lot of respect for each other. They're very close as friends. They also don't seem to have spent much time with each other for quite a period of time. So it's a bit of a reunion. Uh, and what is so what I liked about it was uh, just the energy, the uh, the the kind of passion for cinema, and that's really evident. And that's uh, that's something true of Bong Joon-ho. It's also true of the others. And I think it also contextualizes. Um, the film within this period of the 19... Uh, I'd say film, but this club within the period of the 1990s, uh, which is a, you know, a significant period hmm. for Korean cinema. And that's what we're talking about at this conference. Sure, Jason, this sounds like a film that was tailor-made for you. Hit for me. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Darcy, it sounds does sound like a fascinating film, but I also wonder if it might be quite niche in some ways. Uh, what do you think about the film, and will it appeal to non-experts of Korean cinema as well, do you think? I, mean, I think there are things that people can find interesting in this film, even if they're not familiar with Korea or with Korean cinema, because, I mean, partly it's a story about technology and the fact that you know, in the early 1990s, it was difficult to get access to a wide range of films. Uh, and, you know, this was following on, you know, several decades in which, um, you know, in Korea, they kind of restricted the number of foreign films that screened in Korea. And so as a result, it was mostly just Hollywood films that were screened. And in the 90s, you had a whole generation that was discovering world cinema, that was discovering cinema history. And... But compared to now, where I mean, it's really easy to access anything, uh, it was like this adventure to try to 
track down these films that you'd read about in books, then uh, you know people would be so curious to to watch this particular scene that was described in in this journal article, and so they you know would go out to different markets, and when they'd find a copy of a a VHS tape, you know, they'd, they'd make their own copy, they'd start to build their own small archives, basically. And this club is one example, but there were actually many such clubs around Korea at that time. Mm. And, um, you know, it brings back just a sense of kind of uh, the relationship between, you know, your passion for a certain type of hobby or something like that. And, you know, sometimes when you get access to everything that you want, like it seems like it's a great thing, but actually it, it kind of lessens a bit of your passion. Hmm. And, you know, having some kind of a, a lack, <laughs> you know, drives your passion more so that you go out and you search for things. And we see that dynamic in this film. And so it's interesting to connect that to like the later careers of Korean directors and uh, just in general, right. like Korea's love for cinema. It does seem like a film for film lovers, uh, especially, Jason. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, but yeah, just kind of um, piggybacking on uh, one of Darcy's earlier points, um, uh, talking about te- uh, technology. And I think um, what I, one of the kind of interesting stories I liked in the film was Bong Joon-ho uh, was was able to, he got these videos and there were VCR video cassette recorders and he was able to, they had this kind of dial where they could rewind Um, and he basically was watching The Godfather and what it it allowed him to do was he could go back to a scene and then go back to it and keep rewinding and, you know, watch it almost in slow motion Uh, and uh, so yeah, it, it 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 was a real period of discovery for him uh, and for others mm, you know watching right. films uh, and so yes it is for cinephiles but but at the same time it's really accessible it's really accessible it's not i mean i'll show mm. it to my students of course uh, but there's a lot in there and it's just a lot of fun so you don't right. have to be a korean cinema fan to enjoy it right so once again it's called yellow door 90s lo-fi film club and it's available on netflix that's where we'll wrap it up this week jason darcy as always a thank you for your views and have fun with the rest of your time in Hong Kong. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having us as always. This place is amazing. I feel like a new person already. I knew this was a good idea. And look, Juliet, it's a sign. I say we go to this ball, y'all. It is my night out. And this is where it all begins. So, baby, This is Broadway actor Hwang Jumin. Now you're listening to KBS World Radio. It's time now for our Friday closing segment next week from Seoul, where we look at what's coming up in the days ahead. And joining me now in the studio, it is our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jang-ho. Okay, so what's the first thing we should look out for next week? Well, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin will both visit South Korea next week. Blinken will visit Seoul on Wednesday and Thursday following the group of seven foreign ministers meeting in Tokyo. He will meet with his South Korean counterpart Park Jin and they will both discuss North Korea issues, economic security and cutting edge technology and more. It has also been confirmed by the Korean government that Blinken will meet with President Yoon Suk-yeol but the specific schedule has not been announced as of yet. 
And you said the US Secretary of Defence, Lloyd Austin, will be coming around the same time as Blinken. What about his itinerary? He will come to Seoul for annual bilateral defence ministerial talks and other events. This is part of a three-nation trip to India, South Korea and Indonesia, and he is expected to also be here on Wednesday and Thursday. The U.S. defense chief is set to attend the security consultative meeting between Korea and the U.S. and a meeting of defense chiefs of U.N. command member nations. Austin will then meet senior government officials, including his South Korean counterpart, Shin Won-shik. Yes, these visits come amid much volatility around the world, of course. I'm sure we'll also see messages about the Gaza conflict, as well as uh, North Korea's arms sales to Russia. Both Blinken and Austin are set to arrive here on Wednesday. Uh, What's the next thing we should look out for? The government is set to announce supplementary measures to a planned revision of the current 52-hour workweek system. Back in March, the government announced a reform plan to flexibly adjust the current system to monthly, quarterly, semi-annual and annual work schedules. This sparked public concern, especially from the younger generation, as under the reform plan, people could work 69 hours per week. The Ministry of Employment and Labour said on Thursday that it had surveyed over 6,000 citizens and focus groups and updated revisions based on the results. The updated revisions will be announced on Wednesday. Yes, this was a controversial plan. It was initially announced, so people will be very keen to see what new details and updates have been made. The announcement is coming Wednesday. Okay, what's the last thing we should keep an eye out for next week? The 18th Busan International Fireworks Festival is set to take place on Saturday at Guangali Beach. On top of magnificent fireworks, visitors will be able to see a variety of events such as a media facade harmonised with Guangandekyo's bridge lights and multimedia shows combining spectacular fireworks. The festival is expected to attract over 1 million people, so safety measures have been put in place so that there are no accidents. Subway trains will be increased by 240 times, and from 5 to 8 p.m., the interval times between each train will be shortened to 4 to 6 minutes. Currently, it is between 5 and 8 minutes. The last train time will be extended by 25 minutes, and over 2,000 people will be sent to subway stations and around Guangali Beach to help guide passengers and maintain order. So to anyone going to see the fireworks, I hope you have a fun and safe time. Right, that's all for this segment. Richard, thank you for that roundup. Have a great weekend and we'll see you Monday. Thank you. Have a great weekend. And that's all from us here on Korea 24 for another week. Join us again on Monday to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful weekend. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Don't even think about checking that message or texting back. Did you know it only takes three seconds after a driver's attention has been diverted from the road for a crash to occur? Texting while driving is six times more likely to cause an accident than driving under the influence of alcohol. Sending or reading a text message causes drivers, on average, to take their eyes off the road for five seconds. When driving at 80 kilometers per hour, that means that drivers travel approximately the length of a football field with their eyes closed. At KBS World Radio, we value our listeners' safety and well-being. If you're listening to our programs while driving via your mobile device, please hit play before you set off on your journey. If you receive a message or a call while driving, either use a hands-free Bluetooth device to respond or wait until you've arrived at your destination. You're not just putting your life at risk. 
Distracted driving accounts for approximately 25% of all motor vehicle crash fatalities. Arrive alive. KBS World Radio.